we're just not always quite sure how that happens. We want God to come running over the hill like the cavalry to rescue us from whatever it is we've gotten ourselves into this week. And when that doesn't happen quite the way we had planned, we begin to ask questions about whether God is really with us, God really loves us, God really cares. And so how does God provide? How are we to live as holy people in the midst of God's provision? In our singing and in our praying and in our looking at the word this morning and our conversation with each other, we want to dig in to that theme and to stir our souls a bit about how God provides in our lives. Hear the words from Psalm 147, verses 1 through 11. Praise the Lord, because it is good to sing praise to our God, because it is a pleasure to make beautiful praise. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem, gathers up Israel's exiles, God heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. God counts the stars by number, giving each one a name. Our Lord is great and so strong, God's knowledge can't be grasped. The Lord helps the poor, but throws the wicked down on the dirt. So sing to the Lord with thanks. Sing praises to our God with a lyre. God covers the skies with clouds. God makes rain for the earth. God makes the mountains sprout green grass. God gives food to the animals, even to the baby ravens when they cry out. God doesn't prize the strength of a horse. God doesn't treasure the legs of a runner. No, no, the Lord treasures the people who honor him, the people who wait for his faithful love. Pray with me. As we gather this morning, Lord, we pray for the audacious, wonderful good news that your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And so we say, come Holy Spirit, come and speak a word of hope, a word of peace, a word of challenge, a word that empowers us. Come and speak as we sing, as we pray. As we look at your word, come and speak, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So to whom will you equate God? To what likeness will you compare him? An idol? A craftsman pours it, a metal worker covers it with gold and fashions silver chains. The one who sets up an image chooses wood that won't rot and then seeks a skilled artisan to set up an idol that won't move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Wasn't it announced to you from the beginning of time? Haven't you understand, understood since the earth was founded? God inhabits the earth's horizons. Its inhabitants are like locusts, stretches 
out the skies like a curtain and spreads it out like a tent for dwelling. God makes dignitaries useless and the earth judges into nothing. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely is their shoot rooted in the earth when God breathes on them and they dry up. The windstorm carries them off like straw. So to whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One. Look up in the sky and consider who created these. The one who brings out their attendant one by one, summoning each by name. Because of God's great strength and mighty power, not one star is missing. So why do you say, Jacob... And declare Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My God ignores my predicament. Do you not know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His understanding is beyond human reach. He gives power to the tired and revives the exhausted. Youths will become tired and weary. Young men will certainly stumble. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will fly up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not be weary. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. Let your word be our rule. Let your spirit be our teacher. Let your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Waiting can be an absurd state of being. Samuel Beckett would have us wait for Godot. And Christopher Guest, who channels Samuel Beckett's spirit, I suppose, would have us wait for Guffman. Is there someone or something worth waiting for out there? Is there a Superman out there? Jeffrey Canada realized there wasn't, and somehow, somehow that became public education's fault. Daughtry would like us to believe there is, or at least by his music that says there is. And so we wait. We wait. We wait for the economy to turn around for us. We, we wait for a real leader to run for president. We wait for the baby boomers to get their butts off the stage of history. We wait for the millennials to step their game up a bit. We wait for the download to complete. We wait for the traffic to thin out. We wait for my turn. And as we wait, we find ourselves becoming more disengaged and more irate. We become more passive and more agitated. We become more restless and more tired. Waiting and the absurdity it creates in us drives us towards the maddening paradox of malaise, of whatever. The second movement of the prophetic book 
the prophetic opera called Isaiah, is chapters 44 to 55. The material in this section was likely written early in the post-exilic period of Israel's history, when Yahweh worshipers were finally permitted within the stability of the Persian Empire to recolonize their historic homeland. It was a homeland that had been inhabited by their grandparents and never seen by them, except, except in their mind's eye through the stories that were told at the hearth late at night. Chapter 40 begins with this great announcement. Comfort, comfort my people. Wait no more. The exile is ended. The shame is removed. The new possibilities are on the horizon. Be grateful for God's grace-filled words that decree both reprieve from sin and new start on the journey. The city of your grandparents' memory is now your home, and you will be led there not by an armed brigade of military might and civil control, but by a gentle shepherd who carries you every step. This announcement in chapter 40, verses 1 through 11, creates such transformational magnitude that it unleashes from the prophet a crescendo of praise in the form of run-on rhetorical questions and startling declarations of fact. Isaiah 40, 12 to 17 gives us insight into the God who redeems his people. Israel had watched in exile and saw the Babylonian religion with its theology that the people were created by gods who were not indefatigable. The Babylonian pantheon required humans to provide them with food and drink and shelter, often at the expense of their very lives through the atrocity of human sacrifice. Humans were there to do the hard work the gods, and not to mention the gods' representative, the king, the work they did not wish to do. But Yahweh, Yahweh on the other hand, is the one God who made everything and sustains everything and did it for the sake of justice. For Isaiah, the actions of emperors and emirs do not constitute the heartbeat of history. God is the heart and soul of all that matters. Not even the return to the old sod of Zion is as important as the return of heart and soul to the maker and sustainer of all. But such a return can be inhibited. Even in the midst of the glorious good news of the end of forced exile, there's a hesitancy a hesitancy brought about from the malaise of 70 years of passive waiting. The words then of Isaiah 40, 18 to 31, give us a pr prophetic view on how God's people enter into the new lease on life that is grace. In verses 18 to 26, the prophet invites the people of God to remember who's in charge. Isaiah recalls the folly of idol-making and idol-worshipping, verses 18 to 20. Israel had always struggled with idolatry. 
from the golden calf on the way to the promised land to the last days of the Davidic kingdom. Israel wanted it both ways. Yahweh's omnipresent but invisible love and the Baal's earthy symbols of fertility and harvest. Israel wanted to double down on their religiosity. Yahweh promised to take care of them, but Yahweh happens to be unseen by human eye. So it is good, Israel thought, in their wisdom, to hedge the bed a little bit. A little idol worship, just to make sure. As Ronald Reagan was fond of saying, trust, but verify. Maybe a formula that works in statecraft, but it doesn't work in faithcraft. The prophet makes clear that idolatry must disappear once and for all if Israel is to find the comfort that has eluded them for generations. The prophet makes this point on the basis of God's incomparable acts of both creation and justice-making, verses 21 to 24. Using a set of rhetorical questions to emphasize his point, no one and nothing but Yahweh is able to take credit for the ultimate beauty of creation and the ultimate impotence of potentates and judges. The prophet tells Israel categorically that it is self-evident and obvious that Yahweh is in charge and that idols are a redundancy that slaps God in the face and it should happen no more. Verses 25 and 26. In short, Isaiah is saying, pay attention to what is really real. Idols and golden and silver images inlaid with wood may look nice, but they are empty. They symbolize nothing. The glories of creation and the emptiness of empire are evidence enough to prove once and for all God rules. And Israel got the point up to a point. Idolatry as an act of worship in the presence of a representation of gods other than Yahweh totally ceases after the exile. But idolatry took on other forms, materialism, militarism, racism, God's people have been very good at finding other applications of unilateral power and coercion that seeks to take godlike power over our lives. And nevertheless, the cure for idolatry has always been the same. Making a choice. Do you want to live in the real world? The real world. The one that God made and that God sustains. Or would you rather cower in the corner of the fantasy world of your own concoction, where you naively believe that the resources of creation actually belong to supermen, who through the violence of tongue or heart or fist seek to control the world as God intends it to be. The failure of idolatry is that Godot and Guffman and Superman never really show up. And if they try, they don't last. But God does. God shows up. God sticks with us. 
And that's the point the prophet nails home in verses 27 to 31. You see, the people of the return didn't, didn't come back to riches. They came back to burned out cities and broken down hovels. Farmland, once productive through generations of sustainable agriculture, now either abandoned to go to weed and seed or exploited by squatters for a quick cash crop. Infrastructure collapsing, communication difficult. It wasn't a land of milk and honey anymore. It was a broken down patch of rubble, preyed upon by bandits and pilfered by the desperate. It was enough to make anyone wallow in self-pity. Verse 27. The land of the return was a petri dish for malaise. Isaiah's response to the conditions of the land was not to try to sugarcoat it and then to wait for a superman to show up and fix it. Using the rhetorical questions that were employed in verse 21, Isaiah forcefully reminds the returning people of God in verses 28 to 30, that this is a God who is not fickle like the preposterous Babylonian pantheon of crazy deities. Yahweh is a God of commitment. Yahweh doesn't get worn out with your whining. Yahweh doesn't give in to our self-pitying fatigue. Yahweh's in it for the long haul. And so like the call to action, in verses 25 and 26, Isaiah calls the people of God to act in verse 31. The call to wait, to trust, to hope, is not a call to mindless passivity. The Hebrew word for wait, if you're reading out of the King James or the New Revised Standard Version, or hope, if you're reading out of the NIV or the Common English Bible, is the Hebrew word the word comes into the Hebrew during the Babylonian exile as exiles observed the process of large-scale industrial rope making. Babylonian ropes were made not by individual farmers and villages twisting vines together, but in a large-scale process a vast animal-powered stretching and twisting machines that took the strands of the rope and fused them, creating a tension that held the cordage together and held it under the stress of repeated use. To kwa-va is to hold on to the tension, to live in the tension of a rope, not to whatever, not to sit and wait passively, but to actively live in the tension. In fact, the, the phrase wait or trust or hope in the Lord draws from two meanings, the making of rope and the Old English or the King James definition of wait upon as attending upon or escorting someone, to have an appointment with them. Waiting is not passivity, it is anticipation. It is the looking forward to a relationship with Yahweh. When we wait upon the Lord, we don't sit 
and twiddle our thumbs for God to show up. Because he's already here. We wait upon the Lord by going to an appointment with him and engaging in relationship with him. So waiting and trusting is the act of living in the tension of hope through our regular audience with God. Knowing God is acting acting because we meet Him regularly. It is being wound up in those audiences for the inevitability of faith in the face of the challenges of disbelief. You see, God always throws us a line. God always throws us a rope. There is no need to wait on a superman. Yahweh is more than sufficient, Isaiah says. There's no need for self-pity. There's only our willingness to do in audience with God the hard work of twisting and crafting the strands of our lives in God's direction. We don't wait passively for God to show up in crisis. We actively live in regular communion with God, the God who directs us, who supports us, who energizes us. So this morning, some questions to consider. What are the idols that you struggle with in your life? Where and when have I seen God at work in my story, in your story? How real is the world you live in? Is is your world the real world that God created or is it the fantasy concoction? that we are willing to take on and then hope God bails us out of that? When am I most likely to fall prey to self-pity? When has God thrown me a rope? How do I live in the tension of hope? How do I live stranded together with others to form an unbreakable cord that's ready for action, that supports the weight of the moment and binds and looses our lives for creative expressions of grace and justice and love and hope. One final word this morning comes from my friend and colleague, Glenn Thrush, the pastor at Gateway Community Church in Chino, in his uh, book, Soaring Hope. He writes, Our assignment is not to explain away why the kingdom of God cannot come to earth or why God's will cannot work here on earth. Our job is not to explain away the power of God because we do not see God's kingdom everywhere. Our job is to lean into the agenda of the kingdom, of the new creation. This is where history is going. We have the Holy Spirit in us in fullness. He's in our minds, and he's in our hearts. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the comfort we really need not an absurd passivity until the crisis of the day is upon us, or 
the vague hope of a Superman to rescue us every time we turn around. But instead, thanks be to God for the invitation to the slow work of grace and return, to a standing appointment whereby a rope is thrown into the malaise of the world as it is, a rope twisting with the tension of hope towards the world as God intends it to be, a world we can lean into, one as glorious as his creation was at Eden and as just as he has always been. Amen.